and welcome to Controversies in Church History. I am Derek Taylor, and this is a special recording, a little bit of a, uh, a sort of one-off, uh, and uh, it's a recording of a blog post I made on the blog for this, uh, this podcast, Controversies in Church History. And uh, I wrote a little blog just commenting on a couple of things in the news lately because I've been thinking about them. And so this is a recording of, of, the, uh, of that post. I may go off script a little bit and riff a little bit, but for the most part, it's a reading of that post. You can read it at churchcontroversies.com, or you can just listen here. Some people like to listen to these. Some may do this from, uh, for, um, for, um, in, the, uh, in the future. And um, so here it goes. Um, Church musings, Dalphat on Vatican II and diocesan mergers. Update, JP2 Institute. Hello, everyone. It has been a busy but rewarding semester, and I should be returning to podcasting in the spring, barring any unforeseen events. Uh, However, I did want to make a few comments on a couple of items in the news regarding the Catholic Church recently. Let's begin, shall we? Ross Dalphat on Vatican II. Ross Dalphat is the House conservative for the New York Times, someone who is supposed to represent the quote-unquote reasonable face of political conservatism, though many of the liberals who react to his columns act as he is a fascist anyway. The main thesis of his article can be summed up like this. Vatican II was a failure, but we are now stuck with it. We cannot go back to the past, and everyone is now living in a quote-unquote post-conciliar age, whatever whatever we may think of it. He also says the council was necessary to reform the church, even if it failed. I don't read Dalphat that much anymore, as I find his opinion on things to be too anodyne, and this instance is no exception. His writing always seems to be hankering after a golden mean that doesn't really exist. Now, I should say I do appreciate that he is trying to reach people, in this case liberal Catholics, who otherwise would never listen to someone like me, or a traditionalist who actually had a public following. In this essay, he clearly is trying to convey to them what should be obvious, but, uh, but um, that no one in that corner can admit to themselves, namely that Vatican II was a colossal failure. But, as if trying to balance out the psychological blow of stating the obvious to people who don't want to hear it, he seems to grant two very dubious assumptions to them as a means of softening it. Let me take each in turn. The council was necessary because, in his words, quote, the Church of 1962 needed significant adaptations, significant rethinking, and reform, unquote. There are some who would deny this, but most of the traditionalists I know would agree that the Church needed some reforms in 1962. But that an ecumenical council was the only means of addressing those problems seems like a stretch to me. As to the need for adaptations, that largely depends on what you want to adapt, why, and how you will do it. Part of the problem with holding such a council, uh, an ecumenical council, is that however it proceeds, it would get, it gives the impression of being able to fix the church's problems all at once and necessarily gives rise to unrealistic expectations. And again, I don't doubt that the church had serious problems. I've talked about this in past podcasts. I'll probably talk about it in the future again. But these problems were the kind that aren't necessarily going to be solved by a gigantic meeting of bishops. Most importantly and because this actually goes back to one of the problems the council had, is that it allowed dissident theologians and ambitious churchmen a platform to pursue their agenda, which they would not have had otherwise. In other words, part of the problem was you already had people high up in the church in the hierarchy, 
in the theological guild who already rejected important parts of the church's teaching. And um, the council gave them an opening to, uh, to uh, entrench themselves, which they have. And so if the council had not met, it is unlikely they would have had the chance to impose their vision so firmly and disastrously, disastrously on the rest of the church. As for his other idea, and this is the other dubious idea I think he grants to people who want to believe in the council as a success, is uh, that the idea that council cannot be undone because we cannot wind the clock back to 1962. Now, I think this misses the point pretty much completely about critiques of post-conciliar Catholicism, and not only, by the way, the critiques, I should say, of traditionalist Catholics. And it is not just that so much of what both the council and post-conciliar leadership did was novel, though this didn't help, but that so much of what has happened after Vatican II departed not from some idealized past, but from what was perennial in the life of the church. And by perennial, I mean constant forms, both in liturgy and discipline and devotion and, yes, theological <laughs> speculation, um, that have proved they can flourish in multiple historical settings and uh, in multiple historical times. And, yes, even can even be brought back, um, even be resurrected after they've sort of died off. That's kind of what happened with scholasticism in the 19th century. It kind of went to a bad phase, and it was resurrected pretty well, I think. This doesn't mean, by the way, that uh, we need to resurrect everything that existed in 1962, uh, or we need to resurrect everything that was in existence at the, uh, at the Council of Trent. Um, but it means that treating um, the Council and all that came after it as an absolute irreversible event grants too much credence to the sort of knee-jerk historicism of progressive Catholics. So though I appreciate his efforts, I think Dow thought, again, I understand what he's doing, I still think, and I heard, I read several people in several places, like, this is a great column, this is very deep advice, I'm like, I, I, I don't think it's very deep advice. <laughs> I think it kind of misses the point, with all due respect to Mr. Dalfot. Second item, the merger of the Steubenville Diocese. If you haven't heard, getting on to the second uh, part of the post, there is a planned merger of the Diocese of Steubenville, Ohio, with that of Columbus, Ohio, that some are beginning to call into question. The bishop of um, Steubenville, Jeff Monforton, says the diocese is unsustainable, economically speaking. But a dozen and more priests have just signed a letter to the bishops of Ohio asking them to reconsider their plan, saying that the bishop's own mismanagement, his own financial mismanagement, is to blame for the diocese's problems and won't be solved by such a merger. And I mention this item because I often wonder uh, a good deal about how competent most bishops actually are with money. I have complained in print. If you have followed, and you probably haven't, <laughs> followed my, my columns in, uh, in Crisis Magazine about bishops becoming nothing more than bureaucrats. However, the fact of the matter is that being organized and effective in managing finances as well as other organizational tasks is a valuable skill both for a bishop but for anyone else. <clears throat> And it just might be that there aren't that many people who possess those skills who want to become bishops, though I suppose some people could be taught. Though, with all the things seminarians have to learn in their formation, I don't know how they would do this. Still, this case bears watching, uh, because the Church in the United States is going to shrink, to say the least, in the coming years. 
my editor at Crisis Magazine, uh, Eric Sammons, suggested on Twitter recently an idea. I first heard the late Richard John Newhouse, father of Richard John Newhouse, um, express uh, years ago that the church should do the exact opposite of merging dioceses. Instead of merging failing dioceses, uh, it should create many new ones to reduce their size and make them easier for bishops to oversee. I must admit, I've always found this an attractive idea. I think it can be a good idea. Bishops are supposed to have a face-to-face relationship with their priests, and this is simply impossible in gargantuan dioceses like Chicago or New York or other places in the United States. Of course, pooling one's financial resources is part of the logic of these mergers. However, if these dioceses were smaller, they perhaps would not require so many resources to maintain themselves. Father Newhouse, however, mentioned one possible problem with getting bishops to agree to this, namely that many like the idea, they like the prestige of running a large, presumably wealthy, diocese. But with the lockdowns accelerating the decline in church attendance and membership, they might not have that option in the future. It seems to me that it would be a good idea to start trying things like this now while there is still time to experiment. That would require the bishops to focus squarely on the church's problems rather than maintain the facade of its health and unity as long as possible, which is what most of them seem to want to do. Update 1022. Last item, the John Paul II Institute. I am sure everyone is now aware, or anyone listens to this podcast is probably now aware, of the appointment that Pope Francis has made to the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family in Rome. And if you don't know, if you have not heard, the appointment is that of a, an atheist and abortions rights supporter to the Institute, which is supposed to, of course, support Catholic ideas of marriage and family life and uh, presumably its uh, pro-life message. Now, my podcast is about history, and I don't comment much on Pope Francis, partly for that reason, but also partly because I don't think there's much new to say. However, it is obvious to anyone who has followed this pontificate and the saga of the John Paul II Institute that Francis has intentionally undermined the pro-life witness it was intended to nourish. I don't relish making harsh comments about bishops or the Pope in public because no matter how awful they may be, or be perceived to be, I believe with all my heart that the office they abuse is divine. Having said that, Francis is clearly undermining the church's pro-life witness, should convince anyone who is not blinded by loyalty or self-love of just what a terrible person he is. There is simply no excuse for this, and the sooner this pontificate ends, the better. However, that is not why I wanted to comment on this painful episode. Rather, I wanted to comment upon it because I want to encourage my listeners not to lose hope or to grow cold in their faith because of his actions. The faith that God himself, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, gave to us through the patriarchs and the apostles and down through their successors to us today is eternal and it will outlive all the awful men who will harm the church in this world. 
And I confess to you that I have struggled recently with my prayer life and my faith as of late, though not necessarily on any account of anything going on in the church. In fact, these days I am thankful to have had struggles, personal struggles, that take my mind off what is going on in Rome. I only mention this because I want you to know that none of this has none of this has changed what I know to be true, that God will keep his promise not to abandon his people, whatever the future may hold. And so uh, I'm going to get back on the horse, try to reinvigorate my prayer life, and I promise to pray for all my listeners and patrons that you will keep a cheerful and hopeful spirit in these troubling times. And I ask for you to pray for me for the same as well. And so thanks for listening to my thoughts on these topics, and do be on the lookout for new articles of mine, which should be appearing in 1 Peter 5, uh, um, website 1 Peter 5, and hopefully Crisis in the next month or so, and uh, hopefully for new content in the podcast uh, in the new year. And so I'll leave you with the passage uh, of St. Paul, May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you all and God bless.